This episode is sponsored by Nexo.io, Quantstamp, and EY. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello, and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. Some libertarians in the cryptocurrency community look scornfully on blockchain forensic firms. Those are those outfits that provide data analytics to track money flows within and across blockchains and the banking system. To those critics, this kind of surveillance is a breach of a vital right to privacy, a principle that underpins much of the crypto ethos. But at the risk of being attacked yet again by a Twitter mob, I would suggest such arguments are based on a misrepresentation of what cryptocurrency blockchains do. They don't directly solve for privacy. Rather, they do so indirectly by solving a different problem, that of the trust shortfall that exists whenever strangers exchange value. Crypto systems achieve this without needing a trusted intermediary to check on what is going on. And that's why if you manage your assets appropriately, a cryptocurrency system also allows you to better preserve your privacy if and when you choose to exchange those assets with others. That might sound like an argument without a difference, but what's key is that blockchains achieve this not through secrecy, but ironically with transparency. It is the openness of the transaction information, albeit within a setting of pseudonymity and limited personal information, that allows the Bitcoin network to do its thing without a centralized entity overseeing it all. The main problem blockchains solve then is a societal problem. If you want to sit on your property and guard it with your fortress and your guns, you can do that with cash or gold relatively easily, although not always legally. What you can't do easily is exchange that property with others in a trustless manner. It's the societal act of exchange, of interaction and of commerce that makes cryptocurrencies valuable. Why does this matter for the debate over forensics? Because regardless of what you think of the contracts, the government contracts received by forensic firms like Elliptic, whose CEO we'll meet shortly, those entities fundamentally enhance blockchain transparency and in so doing, serve a social function of enhancing the collective trust we have in our systems of exchange. I, for one, would prefer to know that the Bitcoin I've received from somebody isn't the outcome of a child trafficking operation. Like everything, getting this right is a balancing act. What is the right balance between privacy and transparency? How can forensics technology help rather than hinder achieving that balance? And what is the role of government and regulation in setting the parameters for doing so? We're going to throw those questions and more at our guest, Simone Maney, the CEO of Elliptic, which along with Chainalysis is one of the two market leaders in this space. Before we meet her, though, let's say hello to my co-host, Sheila Warren. Hi, Sheila. Hey, Michael. So, look, forensics is suddenly something that everyone's talking about. It's right in the public eye. I think, obviously, you know, all of the issues around Russia and sanctions and so forth are a key part of this. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's interesting to see forensics bleed into the crypto space. It's obviously been something analytics firms have been around for a while. They've been performing, I, I agree with you, a valuable service. But forensics is something, of course, we're quite familiar with in other contexts, criminal justice, DNA, you know. And so what's interesting to me is thinking about the evidence. And so I, in the press recently, I said something like, 
there's all this abundant evidence of crypto's positive use for humanitarian assistance and crowdfunding of military defense in Ukraine, there's scant, if any, evidence of Russian sanctions evasion by oligarchs, you know, and yet that's the talking point. But we actually have evidence. And so we're evolving as an industry in terms of what we can prove and what we can't prove. And in my mind, I think the availability of this evidence is something that we need to kind of consider, especially when it comes to policymaking. What do we know? When do we know it? Right. As they say, who, who do they know and when do they know it? And all that kind of thing is really important. And so I'm yeah. eager to hear from our guests today about the trajectory of this particular part of the industry. What do we know? What do we not know? And, and what are we going to know maybe going forward? Yeah, looking forward to digging into that evidence of where we stand with the whole uh, Russia flows at this stage. So let's bring her on. Hi, Simone. Hi there. Great to be here. Yeah, welcome to Money Reimagined. Look, before we delve into some of that and this whole privacy versus transparency conversation that I'm always eager to get into, why don't you do just for, you know, we have a broad range of listeners, of viewers who may not necessarily understand what it is that Affirm Elliptic does. So can you just in as short a means as possible, give us a quick rundown about what, you know, this whole forensic blockchain forensics activity is all about? Yeah, sure. Glad to do that. So as, as you said, my company is Elliptic and we're really focused on what we describe as blockchain analytics rather than forensics necessarily. And, and blockchain analytics is a sort of broader approach to using crypto information and associating it with identity information to be able to uh, help organizations, institutions, crypto businesses facilitate transactions in crypto safely and in a trusted manner. So really helping bringing what we think of as a financial crime layer to crypto, you know, giving the safety and the confidence to, to businesses that they're not facilitating money laundering, sanctions evasion. So that's really the role that we play in the crypto ecosystem. On that basis, obviously, you've been busy like uh, others in this space, looking at the Russia-Ukraine situation. And there's so much conversation out there about whether or not mm -hmm. sanctions are being evaded with, this, uh, with crypto. Um, what are you seeing? I mean, is there any evidence that that's going on? What, what, what's, what is your data telling you? Look, you've been in crypto for a while, you've been following it for some time, and you know that the general tenor really is often to focus on the criminal activity, unfortunately, even though that represents, you know, less than 1% of total uh, activity in crypto. But for as many years as I've been in this, that's always been the focus of the narrative. Um, and actually, Elliptic's focus is on the 99% of transaction activity, wallet activity that is legitimate. You know, a lot of our research has been really focused on uh, how crypto has been used for positive purposes as part of this conflict. You know, it's been used by the Ukrainian government to raise funds. It's been used by other NGOs that have had their banking access shut down um, to be able to, to raise crypto funds from around the world to help procure various items of military equipment. So that's really where, where we're seeing some, some really good news stories. It's enabling people to continue to have portability of funds in a wartime scenario where carrying cash is simply dangerous. By talking about sanctions evasion, while you know, it's an important part of the discussion, it potentially means that we lose sight of actually what's so positive about recent events. Yeah. So Simone, maybe for our audience, just walk us through, like, how do you know that that's what's happening? How do we know that this humanitarian purposes and this, again, crowdfunding and military mm -hmm. defense is what is actually happening with, with cryptocurrencies? Yeah, it's a great question, Sheila. So really what we're doing at Elliptic is building 
what we call the identity graph of actors in crypto, both uh, legitimate actors and illicit actors. And then we're layering that onto the various blockchain graphs um, that we support uh, at Elliptic in our products. And so what that means is we are collecting information about who the various actors are. So for example, the Ukrainian government, we know what their wallet addresses are. We add that to our data set. We know who the NGOs are that are using crypto to raise funds. We add that to our data set. OFAC, um, as part of the US government responsible for sanctions enforcement, they publish crypto addresses that they believe to be associated with individuals that they want to sanction. We put that into our data set. We'll have lots of other more technical techniques, really, that we use to augment the identity graph, but we're trying to create as big and as accurate a pool of identity information about actors in crypto as possible. And then we use that to assess whether a transaction or a wallet has got links back to illicit entities such as sanctioned individuals or darknet marketplaces. Looking for ways to step up your crypto game? Then go with Nexo. For starters, you get free crypto for each purchase or swap. How about earning guaranteed yields? Up to 17% paid out daily. Ideal for you hardcore hodlers. You don't even need to sell. Instead, borrow instant cash against your assets. Get the most out of your crypto with Nexo at nexo.io. That's nexo.io. Quantstamp is hiring. Join the leading blockchain security company and help us secure the future of Web3. Working for Quantstamp means a fully remote, flexible environment where creativity and effectiveness are valued. Our clients include projects like Ethereum 2.0, OpenSea, Maker, Aave, and Axie Infinity, and we offer compensation packages on par with big tech. Learn more at quantstamp.com slash careers. That's quantstamp.com slash careers. Today's episode is sponsored by EY Blockchain. As businesses prepare for the token economy, EY is committed to building a better working world and connecting global business ecosystems on the public Ethereum blockchain. To learn more about the EY blockchain portfolio of products and services, visit blockchain.ey.com. That's blockchain.ey.com. So one thing that's gotten a lot of airtime recently, particularly in the in Europe, in the EU, is the travel rule, the so-called travel rule. So maybe you can explain to us quickly, like, what is that? How does this play into the requirements around exchanges at this point in time? And I'm happy we can get into the details of what the EP is proposing. I think that's a little out of scope for our conversation today, but just curious to see how that intersects with the work that analogs firms like yours do. Yeah, so that's a, a slightly different problem than the one that Elliptic is solving, but it's an important one when it comes to the evolution of crypto regulation. And, and I think the discussion in crypto circles has really been about whether it's appropriate to take regulation that applies to traditional financial services and then port it over onto crypto, which you know does have sort of privacy, decentralization built into its core. Uh, but then things like the travel rule require exchanges to share information about their users, about who is trying to send funds from wallet A to wallet B, uh, and sharing that information 
between exchanges. The question really is whether that is appropriate in the crypto environment, because it sort of undermines really some of the the built-in privacy. So I think that's exactly where I want to go. It's a kind of a seg into this privacy conversation that I know Michael is going to jump all over and want to have. And so it's interesting to see some of the different philosophies within the crypto ecosystem, right? There are some who Mm -hmm. say absolute anonymity should be our goal. Everything should be private. Why should we ever reveal any information about anything we do online or transactions or exchanges of value Mm -hmm. with anyone ever, right? There are others who are all the way at the other end and say, well, no, you know, to the extent that other exchanges are governed by rules, like, for example, the travel rule, you know, we ought to be governed by the same. I would say that's a probably a less popular viewpoint in the criticism. And most people, I think, fall somewhere in between. None of us are mm-hmm. really excited to think about the use of this for illicit, horrible activities, like Michael's example yeah. of the child trafficking ring, right, kind of thing. We want to be able to root out that activity, disincentivize it, and, and stop it and punish it, I would even say, hold it accountable. And so I'm curious to get a, have you walk us through a little bit how do analytics firms in general intersect with these concepts of privacy? And if there is sort of a philosophy underlying analytics, like how would you describe that? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, if I go back to why Elliptic exists in the first place, it's really because, you know, we have a really strong belief in the power of crypto to help us reimagine uh, the financial systems that we use today. And the team at Elliptic, we really believe that for, for crypto to fulfill its potential, it does require an anti-financial crime layer and um, to be part of that ecosystem. And so, you know, we can be really philosophical about the privacy um, component, but our belief is that we can't get crypto to a point of broad adoption unless we're willing to engage in this sort of anti-financial crime and regulatory dialogue. And so our perspective on that is you know, we're in this because we believe in crypto. And, you know, to a certain extent, we'd much rather we're doing this than someone else is doing that doesn't necessarily believe in crypto in the way that we do. We're doing this in a way that we believe, you know, puts crypto adoption and the growth of crypto first. And therefore, we're doing it in a really responsible way. You know, one of the ways we do that is really making sure that when we are building up our identity graph, we're focused on entities. When we talk about actors, good or bad actors, we're talking about, for the most part, we're talking about entities, organizations. We're not talking about you, Sheila, or me, for example, unless we have been explicitly identified as criminal actors. There is no need for us at Elliptic to identify you or me as part of the identity graph in order to be able to know whether transactions are part of facilitating any kind of financial crime. So let's uh, let's break this down a little bit because I think this is getting to the heart of you know some stuff that we talk about a lot on this show. Anybody who listened to last week's episode will be aware of the fact that it is an ongoing theme that KYC, know your customer, identity rules impose a massive burden on so many people around the world, and that we really should be trying to build a system that gets away from that. So I suppose where people sometimes have problems with you know the blockchain analytics, and I, and I like in fact the fact that you use that word, not forensics, because in some respects, it gets to where I see the real value of this technology rather than being a tool for law enforcement. It's an enabling system for actually building a better system because the current system is just fundamentally broken. There are just billions of people who don't have access. There is de-risking. Listen to countless episodes of Money Reimagined and you'll get this why KYC fundamentally sucks. So like you just talked about, you don't need to identify the individual. You only need to identify the entity. What do we need, though, to to take this to the next level? Because 
at the end of the day, what you're doing right now is really facilitating, I mean, it's built upon the existing system. So in some respects, it's a government problem. And is there a case to be made, and I suppose to be said, what are lawmakers and policymakers doing in response to these sorts of arguments to say, you know what, because of this high level analytic system that we have, and the way that we could maybe approach this from a broad systemic risk perspective, rather than an individual onboarding KYC system, we can actually redesign the model such that it doesn't impose this burden on individuals. I mean, is that part of the way you're thinking about things? And what needs to happen to take what you're doing to then build a system for everybody that actually, you know, takes advantage of of what you point out are the real benefits of cryptocurrencies? Yeah, look, I think when we really focus on things like KYC at the individual level and the burden that that creates, you know, we're really at risk of missing the point here, which is that blockchain-enabled crypto assets provide us with an incredible opportunity when it comes to managing the financial crime risk. You know, they are inherently transparent. They are immutable. We can all see, you know, all of the, the transactions that take place on a blockchain. We can understand what's happening. Because of that, using crypto for illicit purposes just doesn't make any sense, really. You know, we, we can powerfully, using blockchain analytics, follow funds when they're used for illegitimate purposes. And, and there have been countless examples that have proven that we're able to trace back to the bad actor. And, and so I think we need to keep the focus there on the fact that we, we have got huge potential with blockchain-enabled assets, as I said, when it comes to addressing financial crime. I came from a traditional finance, financial crime background before joining Elliptic. And, you know, as you say, the system is broken. You know, it's really become about complying with regulation rather than actually addressing the core issues of where the financial crime is coming from. Obviously, none of us want to see that happening in in the crypto space. (laughs) We should be thinking about how we can use the the unique attributes of the blockchain to evolve the way that uh, that we, we are performing compliance. Because, you know, I don't think we disagree with common sense approach to compliance. You know, it's just, that's a societal issue and we want to eliminate financial crime. But how can we actually leverage the, the attributes of blockchain to make that better? You know, one of the things that we are able to do, for example, at Elliptic is look at risk at the entity level. So we can look at entities that facilitate crypto transactions and know what the relative risk of each one is based on on-chain and off-chain information. You know, that is a very different way of thinking about risk management compared to traditional finance. You know, you, you can't, as a third party from the outside, look in at various different financial institutions and know which ones are more or less risky based on what's, what transactions are being facilitated through those, those institutions, which you can do in crypto. It's so interesting, Simone, you made such a good point, which is when policy is first enacted or when rules come down, there is a societal goal behind them, right? There's a public policy goal. And that goal might be reduction in crime, reduction in fraud, protection of the vulnerable, whatever it is. But over time, as those rules get more and more codified, a compliance function does become about following the rules. And you almost separate the letter of the law, if you will, from the spirit of the law. What was the point of the regulation in the first place? Something I think we're seeing in some of the policies that are being made now is the attempt to port tradfi regulations and policies into mm-hmm. crypto misses the point. Like, and I keep asking, policy, what is your goal? What is the goal? If the goal is X, then 
the policy that works in TradFi may not be the right policy to affect that public policy goal within the crypto system for exactly the reasons that you're citing, because there are different tools that we can use, including analytics and other kinds of things. And I actually think we're seeing a growing awareness of the importance of training people in government on how to use analytics, how to understand a block explorer, how to go in themselves and figure out like, what am I seeing? What does this mean? What can I see and not? So all these kinds of questions. But it leads inevitably, I would think, to a different regulatory result to affect the same policy goal. This is just something I think is so missed. And to me, just the idea, and here I'll, I'll get on my soapbox a bit, the idea that something that works in a far less transparent system is going to be required in a system that literally contains more transparency by definition is just silly to the point of being ridiculous. Like, why would you think that would make any sense? So I just wanted to flag that point because I think it's such a critical one. And we have to ask ourselves, what are we trying to accomplish? Who are we trying to punish and protect, right? And if we don't have an answer to those questions, then perhaps the ecosystem is not ripe enough for a policy intervention because we can't be sure that the goal is justified. Now, the second point, which Michael made, on, as Michael put it, made on the show so many times, is that a lot of times you have unintended consequences. So you go in intending as a policy matter to protect X or to accomplish Y, those things being to protect a certain population or disincentivize a certain kind of activity, and you wind up being way too overly broad. And so our objections to the KYC regime are well-documented on this show. But the idea there that the result of that was sweeping in a whole bunch of folks who now just don't have access to financial services because of the burden of KYC on their small value transactions. And I think the question becomes, how do we going forward reassess if those were the right policy goals in the first place? That's a matter of opinion. And then if so, how do we get to a regime that's going to actually affect those goals in the most narrow manner possible while still enabling the broadest access to the most number of people in the most number of countries, right, that we possibly can do. And so I don't really have a question here. I just wanted to kind of log that point because it's such a critical one. And I appreciate you kind of flagging the distinction between the policy objective and the path taken to get there. And so I guess the question I would ask you when it comes to policy is given you know, the detailed information you have about what's possible using analytics, you know, are there things that you don't see, conversations that maybe are not happening in the policy space that you kind of wish were happening or you're maybe trying to affect that you're you know, comfortable talking about with us today? I'd be very curious to get a sense from you or specific aspects of, of TradFi policy, let's say, that you think are particularly problematic in the context of blockchain-backed ecosystem. Yeah, let me think about that. I think, you know, the thing that really comes to mind as you were just speaking there, um, Sheila, is really around education. You know, I think that that is such a key factor in all of this. We're often having conversations related to policymaking where, where perhaps there just isn't enough understanding yet. You know, I, I do think that there has been a significant step up in, in kind of crypto literacy, if you like, uh, amongst policymakers, which is fantastic to see. And, uh, you know, the industry has done a great job in contributing to that, but there's still a long way to go. I think we all know in, in, in government, there are lots of changes in roles very frequently and, and, you're, and you're often, you have to see that education exercise as a, something that's really never finished. You're constantly doing that. And especially as crypto is also evolving so quickly itself, we spent a lot of time educating on the core kind of blockchains, you know, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum. And now we've, we, we're talking to them about DeFi and how that works and NFTs and how they work and all of the new kind of buzzwords that it's a constant exercise in, in educating. 
to help the policymakers make sensible choices. I think the other component is that as an industry, we have to engage with the policymakers. We have to do this in a positive way because we shouldn't expect that crypto can you know, really become part of mainstream financial services if we don't have a, a layer of regulatory compliance around it. Like, that's just a fact that we should really, as an industry, lean into rather than fighting against. I don't think fighting against it is going to serve our purposes and we have to sort of work with rather than against. And as I said, like education is a big part of that. It's one of the things that makes working in crypto so exciting, but also really challenging, which is that people are, are writing regulation as these new technologies are being put into usage. It's really exciting that we get to be part of that and, and help shape that dialogue. But it's got to be normal that there are going to be some bumps in the road as we as we get there. You know, speaking of that new, new law and new regulations, there's a lot of focus right now in the US and certainly other countries as well, but right here, right now, around the evolution of you know, a future digital dollar. We've got plans for CBDC, central bank digital currency. We've got people promoting stablecoin concepts. And there's new idea of an e-cash model that a number of lawmakers have put forward, which really isn't crypto-based itself. It's really about, but it does act, it seems, to try to preserve privacy, trying to literally recreate a digital currency in the form of a cash-like entity that doesn't require an identification layer, and it's all sort of built into the actual cryptographic protections itself. How do you see these things sort of working with blockchains and, you know, the forensic, the analytics activity going mm -hmm. forward? And, and in fact, I noticed that Elliptic had written about this. Do you think, you know, e-cash is, is a good thing? There are people who are going to say that's a, yet another government currency system that will ultimately have some method of surveillance behind it. What's your take on all of that? Look, I think it's a bit early to pass judgment on the e-cash concept. It's so new right now. As with all of these things, the devil is going to be in the detail, and I don't think we have enough of it. Experimentation is generally a good thing, and it's good to see that U.S. lawmakers and others you know, around the world are starting to really embrace these concepts. But you know, really for us at, at Elliptic, you know, we feel quite strongly that, that there is real power in assets that are built on open blockchains. And when you start kind of really deviating away from that, you're losing some of the power that, that comes from that. But look, let's see uh, what's going to happen there. I think the UK government announced something uh, not dissimilar this week when it comes to exploring stablecoin usage. And, you know, let's just zoom out and keep an eye on the bigger picture. It's great that the lawmakers are talking about this now. Uh, instead of resisting it, instead of ignoring it, the British government for a long time was not engaging with crypto, was not a friendly place for crypto businesses to be. And so this is all part of the journey. So when you kind of zoom out to 50,000 feet, it's a positive. But as I said, whether eCash is the right solution or not, we have to really understand what the details are. Yeah, I mean, the way it seems to me is like, you know, eCash is a form of programmable money. It may not be a cryptocurrency, it may not exist on a blockchain, but by virtue of being a digital programmable form of money, it will eventually plug itself into blockchain systems, which may or may not give us sort of all of the power that comes with that. It got me thinking as well, of course, as it does, you know, the crypto world, the blockchain world, that that and other forms of money will become part of is in itself like just rife with innovation, uh, some of which is around mixes, privacy coins, zero knowledge proofs, all of this, which some would argue are pushing up against 
the surveillance activity, the analytics that firms like yours work upon. How do these things coexist? What do you view the role of those sorts of technologies, which are often described as ways to you know, hide or obfuscate criminal activity, but in fact, others would say are perfectly reasonable ways to add fungibility and protection to individuals who require that privacy? Yeah, it's definitely a tricky one, thinking about how to find the balance there. You know, we're seeing more, as you said, innovation in that space. But this is also just a question of regulation as well. You know, are the regulators going to create an environment where individuals can be using those types of techniques, those technologies, or are they going to you know, shut them out of what they consider to be appropriate use of crypto? Again, that's part of the dialogue. It's part of the the education that we all have to do to help them think about like, why would someone want to use a mixer that is an illegitimate purpose that they're not trying to purposefully obfuscate their funds so you know i think if you're a you know a girl working in an afghan school or something you don't want to have you know the, the fact that you're working at school if you're you know an activist in nigeria or i mean there's countless people who would want to hide their transactions if you're a student in hong kong that's up against the chinese government because you're involved in a protest, there's myriad situations in which I would not want anybody tracking my activity that I would suggest are legitimate uses of those funds. Yeah, and I don't know that you have to use uh, necessarily mixers or privacy coins to be able to make that a reality. And so that's where we've got to help keep the regulations from going so far that people are pushed into those techniques. Okay, that's a solid way to think about it. I think I, I would concur with that. Go ahead, Sheila. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, I think it's interesting to me that a lot of policymakers, and I think someone you at this point earlier, tend to gravitate towards the negative use cases when there is so much evidence of positive use cases. And some of the examples that Michael cited, one point, I think we had Alice Gladstein on the podcast talking about activism and human rights and kind of all the various ways that those who are fighting autocratic regimes are using uh, crypto or using Web3 or using the, a blockchain backed application base, basically to kind of do this kind of work. And we discussed, I think, the irony that the autocrats are using the system, but also those fighting the autocrats are using the same system, right? And so you have to think about which of those are you protecting and how do you provide, I don't know, some sort of pushback against, you know, those who do want to use this for nefarious, malicious, illicit, or just even, you know, antisocial purposes, I would say. And, and the definitions of those vary jurisdiction by jurisdiction and policymaker by policymaker. But I think the broad point is that you know, if you don't focus on these activists and others, and I think at one point I made the case that some people call this like edge cases, but these are not edge cases. These are the cases we should be designing for, is my opinion, because right. at the end of the day, we want to be protecting and preserving, you know, those who are vulnerable, those who have very legitimate reasons whose lives are in danger, whether those are journalists, whether those are people protesting against, you know, unjust practices, whatever it might be. I think it's interesting to see as this privacy discussion and debate takes over in various spaces, in, in the data realm, it's not just a crypto conversation, it's happening even more, uh, I think, distinctly within Section 230, the communications that decency, like these kinds of questions around like, what can you say and when can you say it and what are you accountable for and what are you not accountable for? What can a company go after and punish? What is protected by free speech? We're seeing a lot of this activity right now in the US around unionization, around unions, people getting fired for talking about unions and is that legal or not? So all these kinds of cases, I think, and the philosophy around them, we need to be thinking about and putting top of mind when it comes to creating policy in the crypto ecosystem, because this is, I believe very strongly, it's, it's the reason why I'm so invested in this space personally. I really believe that this is the best tool that we have at our disposal at the present moment to protect and preserve 
privacy and to protect and preserve people who require privacy for very legitimate reasons. So it's really helpful to understand, you know, why the technology itself lends itself to certain kinds of reveals, let's call them, the generation of certain kinds of evidence uh, via analytics or even not analytics, just looking at a block explorer and knowing what it says without any analysis whatsoever, you can kind of get certain amounts of information, right? So really understanding that as a core tenet of this technology and of this new world that we're, we're all building together is, I think, fundamental. So super, super interesting to hear, Simone, what you're up to. I guess I'm just curious as a last question, uh, what's next for Elliptic? Like, what are your plans going forward and, and what do you kind of see on the horizon as, as critical priority? Yeah, look, just before I answer that, Sheila, you know, just want to reflect on what you just said there. Elliptic is easily the most mission-driven company I've ever been part of. And I'm, you know, I'm really grateful for that and feel really inspired by that. And, and it's because the, the team in Elliptic sees so much power and promise in crypto, just as you just articulated as well. And I think, you know, we really see that what we do can and should be an amplification effect on helping crypto achieve its potential rather than the, the other way around. And, and so, you know, we share the same degree of frustration when the narrative shifts more to the illicit use case rather than really thinking about and promoting and innovating for all of the, uh, the amazing problems that, that crypto is solving. You know, that's what the Elliptic team is thinking about all the time. You know, how else can we develop our money laundering techniques to be smarter, to do more for protecting the, you know, the, the average user in crypto, while also making overall crypto ecosystem safer and more trusted so that other institutions can engage with it from the traditional world, so that regulators can trust it more. That's really what we're always focused on. How can we use the data and insights that we've got, that we've been able to build up over the last eight or nine years and use them to, to really allow crypto to fulfill its promise? Great. All right. Well, thank you so much, Simone, for being here and discussing this. Obviously, it's a hot button issue, right? I think you, you guys are operating right there at the nexus of a lot of the most challenging aspects of this technology. It really opens up huge questions about what we value as a society. So, you know, good luck to you guys in the way that you are threading that needle and trying to find that balance and appreciate you coming on and taking these questions. There's so much more to discuss as we go forward. Looking forward to hearing more about what Elliptic's up to. So once again, Simone, thank you so much for joining us. And Thanks for uh, having me. You're most welcome. And thank you, Sheila, as always, for joining me. And thank you to you, viewers and listeners. It's always a pleasure. Uh, come back again next week for another episode of Money Reimagined. Bye for now. You've been listening to Money Reimagined. Today's show featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, and guest Simone Maney. This episode was produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau, with additional production support from Eleanor Paul and announcements by Adam B. Levine. Our theme song is Shepherd. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. <laughs>